HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. This is meant to be on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Cora Lee. Chef slash radio host Jenny Dorsey's culinary mission is grand, cooking food and creating environments that are often deliberately uncomfortable in an attempt to change the world with her art. She's working to expose the banal routine and social norms we find ourselves in, and believing in food's capacity for storytelling and genuine interaction even uses augmented and virtual reality to render her food all the more impactful. A fellow Heritage Radio Network host, Jenny has cooked at Aterra and Atelier Crenn, worked in fashion, pursued an MBA, recently wrote a cookbook, was chopped by Ted Allen, <laughs> and she even makes ceramics as a side passion. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jenny. Thanks for having me. 
So let's start with that, your crazy journey to food. How did you go from fashion to business school to culinary school to ceramics, all of it? Yeah, I mean, um, even when I was young, you know, I, I was always an eater. I loved food. But uh, growing up in a, um, a very traditional Chinese family, that was not an option. That was not like it was so far from an option. Um, I never considered it. Both my parents are scientists. And I just remember them telling, you know, don't go into science because you won't make any money. Go into business. Um, and so that was always my thing. Like, what part of business should I go into? And uh, when I was 15, 16 or something, I remember watching Queer as Folk, which was one of my favorite TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main protagonist on that show um, is an advertising exec. So I decided I would be a marketing major in college, which it totally was like, I don't know where that came from. You know, clearly it was baseless. Realized I didn't really like marketing, ended up switching to finance, went into management consulting, essentially through like an accidental array of things and realized um, I don't like any of what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I I kind of liked fashion, I think, for the fact that it sounded cool. And so I moved from management consulting into consulting with fashion, specifically at the company I was at. And I, I was really lulled into complacency there because it seemed so glamorous what I was doing. I was working at all these fashion labels. I was getting big discounts on their clothes, which ironically, even if you get a 60% discount, you are still paying a lot of money for like a thousand dollar dress. If you just think about that, like that was more than I could afford. Um, there was one month I think I netted a negative because I spent so much money on clothes. But you looked great. But I, yeah, I guess I thought I looked great. I was also a little bit of like a binge eating problem because I was like obsessed with my weight, like lots of problems essentially. Um, And at some point realized if I don't do something for myself, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel bitter and resentful every day. Kind of like how I was feeling every day already. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't know what to do. And instead of actually taking like a courageous step, which I think some um, places have painted my journey more as, I was like, (laughs) you know what? I'm going to apply to business school for my MBA. And that way I can just take a little break from all the shit that's going on right now. And then I can continue going back into fashion and making my money and whatever. So I applied to business school, got in. I essentially had a year off before I, or not off, I was supposed to be working. Um, But I quit my job and went to culinary school and thought, hey, like I'll just take a creative sabbatical and Mm -hmm. call it a day. And then I'll go for business business school. school. Um, I graduated culinary school three days before I started at Columbia. And I knew right away like going back into the grind, I was like, this is not for me. I have to figure something else out. Like my heart's just not in it anymore. And I can't, you know, there was like this quote from somewhere that's like, um, most people die at 25, but aren't buried until they're 75. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to be that person. Cause I think that's where I'm going, you know? So yeah, I've been trying to figure it out ever since still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. So, but during culinary school, were you ever thinking, I feel like it's hard to fully immerse yourself in culinary school with that mindset because you were just thinking like, oh, it's okay, I'll just return to real life with, mm-hmm. with business school. But did you feel like you learned a lot about yourself in culinary school and really became, I don't know, the person you were meant to be? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it definitely was a disconnect because you know all my culinary classmates were talking about getting jobs or they had these different aspirations. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to business school. And 
whatever. But I think the big thing that I learned there is I've always surrounded myself with people like me, you know, who are trying to climb the like climb the ladder, pursue the rat race or whatnot. And the people that I met in culinary school just came from such different backgrounds with very different types of quote unquote resumes, as you would call it, different walks of life, different ages. Some people had been in the Navy. Some people had kids. Some people like had um, just different perspectives on life that made me realize I was in a bubble and I never acknowledged or entertained the fact that I had lived a really sheltered and privileged life. The fact that I can just casually take some time off. My parents were essentially paying for me to live in New York so I could go to culinary school and burn through my savings. Like that's so much privilege in one sentence and I didn't even see it. Um, And they really helped me learn more about myself and be a little bit more appreciative of how difficult and different everyone's lives are. Mm-hmm. So after culinary school, you decide to drop out of Columbia. And so how did, what was your glorious return to the culinary world? How did you, <laughs> how did you get glorious. to Because <laughs> now you have like the Wednesdays pop mm-hmm. up and um, you're doing like, yeah, what are you doing right now? And how, how did you get here from there Uh, yeah um I after I I left I had a I was not glorious at all I promise it was just like random jobs um trying to figure out what I wanted to do so for a while I was a barista because I wanted to learn more about coffee I basically was like if I take a bunch of internships I can learn and then I could make a little bit of money and then maybe figure something out along the way of what I did like or didn't like um I did PR for a little while I hated that (laughs) um um, I sold juice to Silicon Valley VCs for a a while like literally door-to-door juice salesman peddling green juice that was interesting um yeah my my husband and I were both out in San Francisco and he was working at a big startup and I was like oh yeah you know I was like in like Sequoia Capital's (laughs) office today and he was like what doing what (laughs) selling them juice (laughs) um like all these people like dreaming to be in their office anyway so I I just I I don't know I guess I did I was a host for a while obviously worked in restaurants as well I feel like I just um gained a lot of life experiences on how people treat each other in the food industry um, uh, in the food industry to each other as well as people outside the food industry treat people in the food industry and got started like ruminating on thoughts of like what which I like which what some of these problems that I might want to tackle in the future even though that didn't really I didn't really like fully realize that for years down the line what I actually ended up doing was um, taking a full-time job at Le Pan Quotidien uh, their uh, boulangerie with um, worldwide locations and doing R&D and menu research and development for them so I kind of used that to start um, an independent consulting business where I did essentially that exact thing for all different brands and businesses um, across the U.S. And that was super boring. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was good for a while because there's always like that initial like, oh, I'm learning, I'm learning. This is an exciting new menu. And at some point, the reality was like the places that will pay you the most money get wants the most boring menu and I just felt like I was like wasting my talent and wasting my time um so I wanted to do something else but I didn't know what that was um and through that came Wednesdays which was this creative outlet for me like if there's no pressure to 
really make money. I want to host these events that mean something. Like, what kind of food do I want to put out there? What kind of experience do I want uh, people to have at these events? Um, how do I want them to interact? Because my co-founder, who's also now my husband, one of the things that we always talked about we met in business school was people don't open up with each other. People talk about the same things every day. The subway or the, I don't know, the weather is a good one or whatever stupid thing that happened to them at work. But like, what about the real things? People get so uncomfortable when you start talking about, you know, um, my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer and just beat that. Like, there is something, you know, like we don't need to spend 30 minutes on it maybe, but now you know something about me and we can talk about that. Like, and just how do you create a space where people feel comfortable doing that? Um, how do you create a menu and food? And my husband does the drinks in a way that people feel like they're safe. Um, so that's the spirit of Wednesdays. And we've been able to successfully carry that through for the last four and a half years. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the main other thing I do which started last year was doing more virtual reality, augmented reality. I became really interested in it randomly one day at acupuncture. I like woke up and was like, <laughs> this is what I have to do. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I went home and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And my husband's like, I support you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so supportive. Um, and I've been trying to figure it out ever since. And I think finally I have events coming up that I think we're um, adding AR, VR to food makes sense because I didn't want it to be like, there's a lot of kitschy shit out there mm -hmm. that has food and tech. Um, you can, there's the most expensive restaurant in the world is in Ibiza and they do this like VR segment they do like AR stuff and it's all just like fanfare and EDM and you know, um, <laughs> and I don't want that. Um, so trying to figure out how to do it in like an artful way. Um, we can talk about like some of the stuff I have coming up, but yeah, I, I'm still trying to find that balance. Yeah, let's start with Wednesdays. Um, so what is that space like? Is there like a regular, is it like a restaurant, like a regular menu? Or is it, how are you able to kind of keep your narrative, yeah. if that makes sense, um, while what, managing like the business side? One of the challenges that we uh, move where the events uh, are hosted, so we don't have total control over the space. Um, we've popped up in everything from, um, well, when we first started, it was out of our one bedroom, like in Chelsea, which as you can imagine was quite small. <laughs> um, but we've popped up in like old warehouses. We popped up inside office buildings. Um, the, our last one was inside the restaurant space at Urban Outfitters in Williamsburg, not too far from here. And it's a fully fleshed out restaurant on the second floor, but inside a clothing shop. So kind of like a weird vibe too and we do our best in terms of trying to make the space immersive so there's things that bring you around the space um, we're not totally serious all the time so there's things like hanging terrariums that had bugs in them mm -hmm. and you would eat that and you would like cut it from the ceiling so there's like something to get you to a far corner or there was um, a make your own like Negroni station so people had something to do and they could talk to each other something to help break the ice um, but I think the main thing in terms of setting up the space for success and setting up the event for su success is that we prime the audience before they come with questions on what we expect them to be not so much you have to talk about this but this is the level of vulnerability we're asking for and we're mm -hmm. upfront about that so questions like you know what is your biggest failure and how has that motivated you, you you're required to send something in and if you send in a bad answer we'll just kick your ticket out <laughs> wait what's a bad answer no, I have like, never failed <laughs> I've literally never failed that is an answer we've received oh. and I'm like wow I don't you're delusional or you're a genius I'm not sure which one right. um 
so yeah like i think some people have um seen the questions and they don't come and that's okay because they're not our target audience um we're lucky that we have enough people who are interested engaged that we sell out every time and we have a wait list so you know i know that this is something people want for their lives even though sometimes people are afraid to you know come up and just announce it all the time Mm -hmm. so for example, for this failure question, um, people are prompted to think about this, and then are they also prompted to discuss it at the event? So how how does food and drink kind of act as this like lubricant to yeah. talking about that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. So um, when after everyone answers uh, with their questions, we actually or with their answers, we take those answers and we integrate them into the event in different ways. Oh. Um, so for instance, one of the questions is, "Are you in the job that you want? And if not, how are you getting there? Or how, what are you doing to get there?" Um, which is, I think, pretty direct. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, you get, we get pretty interesting answers from that one. And um, instead of having everyone's name card, like your, you know, the name tag to notify you <clears throat> of where your seat is, um, it's the answer to the, that question. Oh. <laughs> so people, as they're trying to find their seat, are inevitably reading other people's answers oh, okay. and kind of, like, sometimes that prompts discussion. I, I like to think it is of it as we provide a toolkit and if you want to take those tools and use it to talk about talk to with other people, you can. If they're adults, you can't force them into a conversation or else awkward. But there's little pieces everywhere. So that's one thing that's there. Um, another answer to one of their question uh, one of the questions is on the back of the menu. So we do a seat switch in the middle and everybody reads that answer and goes off and kind of mingles. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the food and drink, all the food has a pretty specific title, and I'll come out and talk about it. So one of the um, food things that I've had recently, it's called Fancy because it's French, and talking about the the like the values and the worth that we assign to certain cultures or certain people, certain food, before we really know anything about them. Um, no knocks on French food, but I think it's enjoyed a relative of royalty in the gastronomy world and um, it's totally baseless you know so digging into that and setting that stage with the food and every piece of the ingredients and the process of it is symbolic and prompting people to kind of talk about it and I like to think that um, I'm not being prescriptive I'm just asking questions and people will think about those questions and talk to their neighbor about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the like the reason I found your work is I was just clicking through Instagram the rabbit hole and <laughs> I came across your page and it's just all these stunning plates, right? Like perfect little sauce dots, yeah, and yeah. perfect little octopus tentacles. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's a berry. No, it's an octopus. It's yeah. just so stunning, and it kind of and you also have these huge captions that mm-hmm. you know show that there's really always a story behind the dish, um, and that really reminded me of museum culture, right? There's like the wall text and there's the image or whatever you're supposed to contemplate and was that reference intended yeah um i definitely think that so instagram's caption limit is 2200 characters that i know very (laughs) (laughs) um and i think that people squander it people Mm. squander it on these dumb posts that are like look at me i have sunglasses on and i'm at the beach which is fine like that's fine if you know your instagram like account is personal and you're doing your thing but there's so many influential people and I don't consider myself really one of them but people who are have huge followings that are not 
like doing anything with their Instagram. They're, or maybe they're selling you a lifestyle that you can never have, that you can aspire to have, mm-hmm. but you're never going to afford that yacht. You're never going to afford that swimsuit. You don't have that body. So like, why don't we use it, use that space to talk about something more important? Um, or at least I think it's more important, I guess, in my own um, biased view. Um, people, things that are painful sometimes or pe- things that are just people are actually experiencing on a day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this one uh, fashion blogger I follow, and um, she has like I think over maybe a million followers. Oh my gosh! And she she's probably like 16 or something. Oh wears like Gucci, and then every other caption is I don't know what to caption this, I, and then oh it gets yeah. like a million likes. And <laughs> like what the heck? <laughs> I mean, it's cool, but why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like it feels. I mean, good for her, you know. And she's built a brand, but it's like it's, it's thoughtless. Like I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so can you talk about the process of uh, compiling one of these posts? Is it like something that you've already cooked for Wednesdays or something you've cooked for the Studio ATAO, right? Is mm-hmm. that what it is? Or is this like you are cooking for the Instagram? Um, it's, it's a mix. I think um, so the upcoming event, it's a collaboration between Wednesdays and then my studio. It's called Studio Tao. It's a nonprofit um, that does all my, all my AR, VR work. And it's called Asian in America. So it's about... the Asian American identity and I've had that idea for a while and I I write as well so I had been writing these little like miniature personal essays on different facets of my memories of the life that is being Asian American one of the things that you know always comes back to me is feeling like people can judge your culture but you can never judge your culture you know that's a perpetual bystander effect or feeling like wait wait can you Break that down. Yeah, yeah. That's really important. I think um, I think that's one of the big things that I don't understand about, or not don't understand, but I see and feel very acutely with other minorities is, as a minority, I think Trevor Noah said this really well, as a minority, you don't get to be an individual. Everyone else's actions reflects on you, mm-hmm. and the majority gets to judge those actions, but you never get to say, like, that's not me, or that's you know, you're not understanding the context of that. Um, I talk about this a little bit in one of my dishes about dog food. Hmm. Um, as a Chinese person, I've heard so many times this like, insults about like, oh, well, Chinese people eat dogs. And some Chinese people do eat dogs. And you know what? They're perfectly justified to eat those dogs because they're literally starving. Hmm. And there's nothing else to eat. And we don't get to judge with our standard of living what they get to do with their lives. But it's, you know, now in the States that context is lost and other people get to opine on this little piece of your culture but it you can't really respond to it ever you like don't have a voice in that and um i i've dubbed it the perpetual bystander always feeling like you just have to receive the judgment and now that asian food is cool it's cool to not eat dogs but eat things like stinky tofu or it's cool to eat bugs or it's cool to whatever but that wasn't the case when I was in seventh grade and I was eating in the bathroom because everybody was like, ugh, that stuff is so gross. You know? Um, you, I've you, totally done that too. Yeah. yeah. Or like you get garlic chives um, yeah, and they smell like farts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Mom, no. no. <laughs> Not that one. Yeah. And I, I get that. And it's like such a painful, complicated memory. And like, it's worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to express that through my food. And sometimes it's uncomfortable because there are people that have eaten my food who who was the bully? Like, they don't have to tell me that, but you can just tell. Like, and that's okay. Like, everyone goes through puberty in different ways, but that that's a part of them, and that's something to acknowledge and understand, too. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, actually, I was supposed to start. I was just so excited to start the show, but um, <laughs> I'm trying this new thing, which is opening each episode with the question, uh, where are you from? Which, um, living in New York, I thought I would never be asked that question again, but it's happened recently, and it was uh-huh, like, all uh-huh. right, it's time to reappropriate uh-huh, this uh-huh. question. So I'm going to start this over. Where are you from? Um, so now, it's funny that you asked that, because it's also... I think what's so important for that question is who is asking it to you. Yes. Like being another Asian person that you're asking me from, I'm like, oh, like I'm from Shanghai and mm-hmm. my mom's from Shanghai. My dad's from Shanxi and um, they moved to New York when I was really little. So I moved to New York when I was three and a half. And then I, but I grew up in Seattle and went to college in Seattle and I knew that Seattle West Coast chill life is not for me. So I came back to New York and I've been here pretty much ever since. Um, but depending on the context of what I, which I'm when I'm asked that question I was recently asked this actually at a wedding um, in Kansas City like literally this guy was like spittooning on me like where are you from and I was like oh I'm from New York mm-hmm. and he's like but where are you from mm-hmm. and I was like oh I'm from Seattle and then I just kept at it you know and it's like the, this it's this weird thing of you almost don't want to say where you're actually from because you don't want to give them the answer they want or the answer that they're looking for, which is, oh, I'm from China. And they're like, oh, yes. As if suddenly <laughs> they understand something about you that they didn't right. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I had the editor-in-chief of Munchies on last week, mm-hmm. and she put it really interestingly, which is like, if you ask me the first time, I say I'm from New York. If you ask me the second time, I say I'm from Michigan, which is like your Seattle answer. The third time is like, you're asking me because I don't look like you. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, totally like the layers... Anyway, so <laughs> now that we've done the introduction, <laughs> let's go back to uh, Studio Tao. Um, so how have you been cooking with VR and AR in your work? Yeah, so... In a way uh, that's like not kitschy or fanfare, which I think is really hard yeah, to do. Yeah, especially with the new technology, especially when there's all the kitschy stuff gets the, all the press. Um, so what I'm doing for this Asian and America event is I have three... It's going to be a six-course meal, so everyone gets fed a little bit more. But the initial um, story is a three-course meal. Um, and every course is pretty symbolic. Um, it's like a, it follows like an appetizer, entree, dessert sort of format. And I have a tilt brush artist. Tilt brush is a, pr- a program from Google where you can essentially draw in virtual reality in 3D. Um, she is going to be recreating every single uh, piece of the ingredients and the process in virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And we're going to turn that into essentially a 360 video so you can see the piece literally being drawn in front of you. Um, and the you're essentially watching, like, there's one part of a dish where the eggs are, um, they're, they're marbled eggs, but they're actually pickled. And I'm talking about, the sim- like, the symbolism behind that and why, like, you know, it's a fight between using what you know, but how do you be authentic? Like, what a, how can you appropriate your own culture sort of thing, walking through that. So watching that scene unfold in front of you in virtuality as I'm narrating it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after you watch each di- dish be composed, um, you take off your headset and the dish is in front of you. So it's like kind of a nice... Like, yeah, eating with the headset on is no fun. So, yeah, it's kind of like a, just like a nice uh, 360 of the, the the dish from start to finish. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask if, if you eat while yeah. all that, that's so much happening. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's just like too much. Right. Yeah. Did you try that in the first iteration? Like if you, you know, actually consume the item as you were learning about it, is it how does that affect um, your mean, experience you, of it? In VR specifically, you just can't see in front of you. Oh. So, like, you... <laughs> 
I, 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 th- I think I might experiment with people drinking mm-hmm. while they are in the headset because I think that's a little bit more feasible. Mm-hmm. But I think, or like maybe through a sippy straw. But I think um, eating is just not <laughs> like I, I don't know where the food would end up. And and also part of it is I want you to see the food, mm-hmm. so then that kind of defeats the purpose. Um, we did this. VR plus uh, food event in Nicaragua where we had people on and off with the headsets and eating um, and we learned a lot from that and just people are a little bit uncomfortable so how do you get them to feel feel like the movements are more fluid and feel like the headset is not like just this giant obstacle in the way but like they're enjoying the experience mm-hmm. yeah so little things we're still I, I'm still definitely figuring that out too Mm-hmm. And so you've just done the VR slash AR with the Asian American series? Um, so we did one in Nicaragua. It okay. was um, it was sponsored by a hotel. So essentially Nicaragua has always kind of played second fiddle to Costa Rica. And now they're trying to really reestablish themselves mm-hmm. and get their word out there. And so uh, this particular hotel collection, they have eco-luxury hotels, they've coined them as. And we went and we profiled three different parts of like Nicaraguan food culture with 360 videos so one of them for instance is coffee we don't as Americans we drink a ton of Nicaraguan coffee like a lot of the high quality coffee that comes into our countries from Nicaragua but we don't really know anything about it or what the process looks like so in our tasting event the, um, the last course was coffee so you would put on the headset, you would watch the whole process of coffee from, you know, them being shade grown, what does that mean, to the workers picking it off and dumping in the truck. I mean, these workers, they're working day round. Like, when they're drying these beans, they have to bring them from the facility. They're fermented and they're getting dried. And every one of them is carrying 120 pounds of beans on their back. And you can see them, like, running across this huge, like, football field-sized thing and dumping these beans. And anyway, so it's like, that's a whole process. You watch that unfold. And then um, I made like a coffee dessert. My husband did a coffee-based cocktail. We also studied fish, and then we did this one called um, Caballo Bio, which is kind of like a Nicaraguan feast and like the history of that and stuff. So it was it was nice because most of our clientele was Nicaraguan, and they were like, "Oh, it's just nice to see our own stuff like done in a way where it's respectful and like this is like like feeling like this is cool." Um, so yeah, that was a really good experience. I mean, that was very low budget as far as things go. We were in the middle of Nicaragua. Wi-Fi was kind of shaky. So, you know, picture quality wasn't fantastic because we were on the lowest video resolution. But still, I feel like watching it make an impact. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, There's something here that I should unpack. So the Asian and America one is my next one. And then I'm working on one um, with a choreographer called Hidden, where it's going to be like VR plus dancing plus immersive Whoa. theater with food um to uncover kind of like the hidden parts about ourselves okay this is meant to be eaten on heritage radio network we'll be right back after a short break you're visiting the in-laws this weekend they've asked you to bring wine You need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory... 
Bovino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile, then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com slash heritage to stock up. Vivino, wine made easy. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm speaking with chef slash fellow uh, radio host Jenny Dorsey about her recent trip and project in Nicaragua. So let's actually talk about that dinner you did there. Um, you were talking about how the diners were primarily Nicaraguan. Mm-hmm. Was that, did you know that was going to be the case? Like how would you have cooked the dinner differently maybe if they were all tourists? Yeah, um, so we weren't completely sure who our audience was going to be. Um, so it was sponsored by a hotel, as I mentioned. So the, the dinner happened at the hotel. Um, and all the all the staff were invited, all the guests were invited, and then um, there were some people from the tourism board of Nicaragua there. And we actually thought it would be a lot more guests who came, so tourists, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot of guests came because I think presumably they were doing, like, some activity, you know, so they just weren't at, like, the hotel. Mm. And so what ended up happening was, like, a lot of the staff came, which was great, because I had been working with, you know, the kitchen staff pretty closely all week to test and experiment all these dishes. And a lot of times they've been eating, like, parcels of things that I've been (laughs) making, but, like, they would be like, hmm, this tastes good, I guess. I don't know what this is, you know? Um, And so for them to kind of see it all together, I think, was really rewarding um, for, like... Also, because, like, they were literally, we wouldn't have been able to do anything without them. They had to, there was one particular memory I have where I, I made this uh, ceviche because we talked about fish. A Nicaraguan is, a Nicaragua is situated in an interesting location where it has access to Pacific fish, Gulf of um, the Caribbean fish, and they also have this giant lake called Lake Nicaragua, which mm-hmm. we were at, um, that has lake fish. And so they have the, all these varieties and just kind of like talking about all these different fish that they have. I made the ceviche. The ceviche that they have in Nicaragua is kind of what you imagine as the classic kind of like Peruvian ceviche, I guess, as Peru has got, made it very popular, but like lime juice, onions, maybe some fried plantains, relatively simple. Um, I did a more of like a Filipino style um, ceviche because it's actually a very similar tropical climate um, and was kind of like just talking to them about how like Filipinos make the ceviche and they were and they were like oh wait we need coconuts for this and literally go to the back and like open <laughs> up a coconut for us I was like oh my god peligroso you know but um, and just like being able to commu- like just share a little bit about that I'm not Filipino but being was like hey like this is an interesting thought like but they do all these un- other things with coconut milk that Filipinos don't do like being able to appreciate I don't know it was like a, it was just an interesting like conversation about cuisines around the world and they they see it in a very different way that we do because they don't have to deal with as much appropriation as we do um but yeah overall I yeah I think it was very rewarding for for them to be able to see all the pieces come together mm-hmm. but like devil Jenny on your shoulder were you ever thinking about like oh my gosh this is a lot of responsibility, right? I am the one to introduce this Filipino yes, yes. dish and culture. Yes. And um, I'm more so referencing your recent post on substitutions yes. and how it's not um, a, it's not culture's responsibility to make themselves accessible to people that are foreign with it. Right? Yes. Yes. And so, how did you mitigate that? You know, I know yeah. it's it's 
easy to just be like, oh, well, we're all just coming here to eat good food. And no, like, but it's not though. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think one of the, actually the big things that I kept worrying about all week when I was there was like, I'm coming here, some like random person from the States taking like all these staples of Nicaragua and reimagining it into a meal. Like, who am I? What kind of like entitled person am I, you know? And I was really worried that they would be like, ugh, who's this person? And one of the things that really struck me was the kitchen crew was so welcoming. They were like, this is how we do it here. This is how we like it. You know, this is how we prepare the tripe for Mondongo. Like, and they were so generous. And when I was like, oh, I think I'm going to do this with it. Is that is that cool? Mm-hmm. Please say it's cool. It's okay. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, that's so awesome. I'm more, And when um, I made, um, so they have a lot of papayas. And then when you, when you take papaya seeds they and grind them, it kind of tastes like black pepper. Mm-hmm. So I did like cashew and pepe, but with papaya seeds. And they were all like, oh, we never eat pasta. We love it. And they, there was like this one cheese farm that we went to that makes cheese because um, this like Nicaraguans eat a specific kind of cheese more frequently than other types of cheeses, but they produce more French cheeses. So anyway, it was this like weird, like not really cacio and pepe, but kind of in that style. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to find the words of like, this is this this is kind of what I was going for. This is not what it always tastes like, but I kind of incorporated little bits of this to that to it, and they were so enthusiastic. And I I think that's what I mean when they see appropriation differently because they don't have all these different cultures mingling um, the way we do. That they they don't see it as offensive if I take some of, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and mix it. Whereas I don't know if that would be seen the same way here, um, and I I'm cognizant of that, and I. I don't know. I have feelings about that as well. But overall, I think they were pretty open to it. Like, thankfully, they were very happy and supportive of the project. And more so, they were just happy to see these videos that showed how hard they were working and how much they cared about their coffee and all these, like, quality inspections that we, they put on the coffee or the fish and et cetera. And to shine light on some of the issues, like, for instance... We don't know any Nicaraguan producers of coffee because those those high-quality coffee beans come here green, and then a roaster puts their name on it. Mm-hmm. So we know Stumptown, we know whatever, but right. we don't know the people who are, like, working their butts off, like, fermenting this coffee. Um, same thing with chocolate, but that's a different story. Um, and with fish, Nicaraguans have so much access to all these amu- amazing fish, but most of that, like the more prized fish is all immediately taken and sold into the States. So, like, you don't... They have tons of mahi-mahi there, but Nicaraguans don't eat mahi-mahi because Americans buy it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's a that's a real thing. And so being able to, I guess, wrestle with that a little bit, I thought was important, and I think they appreciated that. Have you thought of... Because I'm guessing you still have all that VR footage and mm-hmm. those recipes. Have you ever thought of kind of recontextualizing it for an American audience here in New York City? So we're doing a little demo, I guess a mini demo, um, in a week. No, yeah, in a week on the 17th um, at this VR studio called Little Star. It's kind of like an art VR AR showcase where I'll be showing the coffee video and then doing a little sample of the coffee um, dessert and the coffee cocktail. And so, yeah, that would be interesting to see how it's understood there. I think the narration of the video itself is relatively, it's not like accusatory. It's just like, this is what's happening. And then being able to paint a little bit more context, like just like what I told you about the fact that 
we don't know any producers down in Nicaragua because their name never gets shown, light, um, their light never gets shown on their name. Um, being able to have that kind of conversation maybe one-on-one -on -one with people would have more impact than pushing it out and making it feel like a prescriptive message. I don't know. I don't know. Like people, I don't know. I feel like people turn off when you when you try to tell them stuff like that because it's there's such a cognitive dissonance. They don't want to believe that they've been part of the problem. Mm -hmm. I think even if we admit we're part of the problem, it's really hard to see the change through because yeah. you know, living in Brooklyn, we have access to so many of these like quote unquote hip coffee shops that are selling these single origin fair trade blah 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 coffees and we're like okay this came from this village in this country but then what do we do with that information yeah like, how do we move forward with that are we gonna go source like our new yeah. coffees yeah like <laughs> we're in our backyard yeah 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 um anyway so tough questions that we can't quite answer yet it's like how i think we were talking about this before the show but i i think the big thing is like how do we find the balance of being able to step aside ourselves and letting other people speak? And for brands, especially for brands who are really taking other people's products, mm -hmm. like how do you let the producer really shine through but still make money? Because you have to make money because you're a business. Mm -hmm. I'm actually just going to quote you from an Instagram. This is so <laughs> okay. future, but I thought this was so beautifully written. Is You say, um, a few years of immersion is not the same as living and breathing the culture for a lifetime. Too often, we only listen to minorities as an echo to a privileged chef leading the charge, which diminishes the nuances of the cuisine only their voices can offer. So can you talk a bit about these um, kind of gaps in our culinary landscape and even just New York City or Brooklyn? And what are the dangers of cooking an inspired dish versus just letting the person who is familiar and has grown up with these dishes cook that dish yeah um i i want to reference uh, a, a meme video thing that i think <laughs> is now uh, relevant to this is there's a, a video clip of gordon ramsay cooking pad thai have you seen this no so oh. gordon ramsay is i'm not sure where but he's like next to this uh thai chef so i think they're in thailand I'm not sure um so anyway he cooks this pad thai and this thai chef tastes it and Gordon Ramsay literally is like, this is pretty good, right? And the Thai chef's like, this is not Pad Thai. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, on TV? On, on TV, it's a video. I'm sure on if you- On Network? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I don't know what- How did it go? It, I have no idea, but it's gone like viral because it's hilarious. <laughs> and also Gordon Ramsay's always the one yelling at people. Right. And I think that's funny, right? Because, I mean, it's funny because it's, you know, Gordon Ramsay getting yelled at, but also the fact that Gordon Ramsay is so sure that he knows what Pad Thai is, right? That it's like, a su you can see on his face, he's so confused, he's so shocked, he doesn't know, his world turned upside down, because this chef is like, no, that's not right. Because everything, it's maybe it's not Gordon's fault. All his teachers have taught him this. All his, you know, like, all his, you know, TV producers who've taught him Pad Thai have told him all these things that are inaccurate because we don't give enough representation to Thai chefs, Thai people to tell us what their food is supposed to taste like. Yeah. We, I remember going to culinary school and the way we even talk and represent and teach the new generation of chefs about cuisine, global cuisine, is so bad. 
it, I mean, it, for instance, we spent a month wandering around France talking about the terror of Normandy and like if cows on one side of the Rhone like taste like this and cows on the other side taste like this. Like, and then we go to China and we're there for two days and there's the, the cuisine differences we just forget about. Forget Japan. We didn't even touch Southeast Asia. Like, I think we made a vermicelli dish and called it Vietnamese. <laughs> I mean, this is embarrassing. This yeah. is like a, what's now known as a very good culinary school. And so how can you, it's almost like, are those chefs, these new chefs to blame because they have no idea and then they can go pull yuzu from Japanese cuisine and now they're like, oh, I make Japanese food and it's really great and they have no idea what they're talking about. It's like this whole trickle down system of bad information and bias and cultural like stereotypes being passed down. Mm-hmm. No, uh, so I met this, um, I think he's a Vietnamese chef in Brooklyn um, he's white and his whole thing was like he came up to me and was like oh I love your show it teaches me how to think about what I cook mm-hmm. and I'm like okay that's really interesting what do you cook and he <laughs> says like oh I just like really love the flavors of Vietnam and I've been really inspired by that mm-hmm. which is like yes on paper that's really awesome and yep, like yep. beautiful that you are exploring this culture that you're not familiar with but why that's still so problematic you yes. know that you are kind of making this like a spectacle or like some kind of hobby of yours and yep. s- but then it makes me think like he might be one of these grads that you're talking about that like only had 30 minutes um, with Vietnam in a culinary school class. And so how how do you advise these people to, you know, tread these waters sensibly and sensitively? I think the big the first thing that you can really all you can really do is like we can't change what people want to cook, but we can reinforce and demand from these chefs and purveyors and whatever whatnot to be more honest with what they do and what more especially what they don't know um i think that's where i was also having went back to nicaragua was being able to like now that i've come home and i'm like oh i went to nicaragua and did this tasting i'm like i don't know anything about nicaraguan food um i know little bits of it now um i was able to talk to one of their chefs and hear about how they make this like particular soup or how they do Sure, like I can kind of recite that, but that makes me no expert. Mm-hmm. Um, I so talk- you're opening a Nicaraguan restaurant, <laughs> right? <week>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the hottest opening is going to be yeah. on like Grub Sheets Powerless, and like Jacal Market Hall. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Like I, I'm not an expert. I can say that I was inspired by tasting some of these things. I really like some of the flavor profiles. I was really into those papaya seeds and using them as black pepper, and in like that's cool. And I think if more chefs took that approach, is like I like these things but I still don't know anything about their culture and I don't understand the, the psyche that goes in behind their food as well I just know like the ingredient and I appreciate that ingredient I think we can at least we can progress a little farther than we have right now I think right now a lot of especially in the food world there's so much ego there's so much mania especially with how media's covers food um, that people are afraid to admit that they don't know certain things or they aren't the expert that they're just also just trying to figure it out too Mm -hmm. so uh, let's go back to your dog food uh, Asian American (laughs) dish because I'm thinking like these dishes are so stunning and they're clearly indicative of your French training in culinary school right Mm -hmm. and and all these kitchens like Atelier Cran um do you ever feel that kind of disconnect? Like, why do these funky Asian foods have to be presented in a French yes. Eurocentric style plating to be approachable? Yes. 
Um, so I have a dish called Fancy because it's French that takes a traditional Chinese mooncake, which I don't know how many people have made traditional Chinese mooncake. I personally have not. I've just it's watched it. It's too scary. It's, it's so hard. stressful. Yeah. Like, it's so hard. Everything, my mom makes it sometimes. It's, like, weird and lumpy. Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's just, it's really difficult. But yet, we don't see that as fancy. Um, and I uh, I recreate this mooncake. There's red bean mousse. There's, um, you know, how usually there's, like, a salted egg yolk in the middle. I take that and make it into essentially, like, a creme anglaise. Hmm. Um, there's an oolong biscuit, whatever. So it's all very français. And now, suddenly, like, I can call it an entremet. And it's cool. And it's fancy. And, like, this is a mid-course dessert, essentially, is how it would be presented in a French setting. And isn't that strange? The fact that I can take something that was already really difficult, re-engineer it, and now finally actually people will be stunned or wowed or want to pay money for this dish. It's unfair and it's baseless. And like, why is that? Maybe we should evaluate all these judgments that we have. Um, just like how I think we could talk about MSG for days, but MSG has been vilified um, for, for decades now for no reason because uh, it's a more of a cultural perception thing than an ingredient perception thing. And there's so many of those unconscious biases um, in food that we don't acknowledge. Um, yeah, so sorry, to answer your question, yeah, it, that bothers me. And I, I want to talk about that. I want people to see that and recognize how extremely, like, just incongruous like some of these thoughts are about what cuisine is worthwhile and what cuisine is not mm -hmm. there's also this weird spectrum where fancy food is very petite with like very tiny portions mm -hmm. and it's just so precious and then there's like family style asian food that is just like a lot of it and it's like what quote-unquote ugly delicious and so yeah. do you feel like there is a happy medium or do you feel like you're gonna have to change the way you plate things or even conceptualize dishes yeah I it, this this is hard for me because a lot of times the food that I make I would just like never eat that at home for dinner yeah. you know well first of all because it would take way too long and I don't have like hours to prepare my own dinner but also just like that's not my comfort food for a lot of times like there are things that I make that are my own comfort food but if I were to serve them I have to plate them in a different way if I want to command a certain price point. Right. Um, there's a funny like sketch online where it's like, depending on how much white space there are, is on the plate, you know how fancy the restaurant is. And <laughs> if there's like 80% of the plate is white, like so much wasted space, then you know you have to wear full suit. <laughs> but it's kind of true, right? Yeah. Like when I first started making food for Wednesdays, I would make, oh, I think more like things that I would make at home, like braised pork belly and over rice or kale salads and stuff. And I don't think you, I've seen a kale salad on my menu for years now because people want to see like, you know, dainty little things. And it's complicated, like, because family style is hard too. Family style has its own thing. And some people grad, um, like gravitate towards that and their food isn't any less important. So how do we get people to appreciate it? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of this other thing you posted about the statement, less is more. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reading this book that I, uh, it's this super angsty guy, but he talks about <laughs> how like the easier food has gotten to source, the harder we make it on ourselves to get. Like we want the most organic, we want like to know our farmer, et cetera, et cetera. And there's like also something problematic about that. And so can you talk about that kind of like classicist yes. use of that phrase. I think um, it's it's so 
indicative of like this income disparity issue that we have going on in our country and the fact that instead of recognizing we have problems in helping the the lowest rung and pulling them up instead we're like I think this is goes through privilege as well it's like oh well they got themselves there so they have to kind of deal with it mm-hmm. and not we but we got here to our middle or upper middle or um you know upper class like food establishments and lives because we worked really hard like kind of reconciling that privilege um and i think with food we see people who eat not as fancy food as we do and we're like oh well they they're not as refined as we are and we can we can choose to have to help that farmer in nicaragua because we're so in the know and we're so um i don't know we're like we're you know we're I'm trying to find the words. We're, we're able to do so because we care so much and they don't care. And really, they don't have the content. Like, they don't have the time and the space and the energy and the money to care. Right. They have so many other things to worry about. They can, When they want to take their friends out to a fancy meal, they can't afford to go to this restaurant. And we're judging them for it. And why is that? Like, food is supposed to be more egalitarian. Food is supposed to help us bridge these cultures, but instead we're using it as a way to promote our social status. I don't know. There's, mm. there's so much there that it upsets me, and at the same time, sometimes I feel like I'm part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked about race, economic <laughs> classes, but last but not least, I want to talk about your experience on Chopped. So yeah. I've, never, I've never met anyone that's been on I'm Chopped. Sure. So can you... I read your... Um, your piece in Girl Boss, uh-huh. which I thought was really incredible and made me cry actually, because oh. there's this part where you talk about like, oh, you failed, you got chopped, blah blah, blah you're sad, and your like husband goes in for the hug, and you're just like, I don't deserve this hug. And mm-hmm. I think that's something a lot of Asian Americans really can relate to and identify with. And can you like talk about how responding to failure is much more than just like getting back on the horse after you've fallen off? Of it? Like it's really hard, and yeah. what it means for you. I, I think the it's like this inner self-worth that I think a lot of Asian Americans struggle with because, well, I don't want to generalize to everyone's parents, but I think as many of our cultures, our families don't really know how to show that they love us no matter what the outcomes of what we do are. It's like, it's as if the what we are able to achieve taints who are, we are inside. So if we don't achieve something, then that means we're like innately bad or worthless. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you carry that around forever or go to therapy about it, hopefully. And um, I think that's what I was struggling with after Chopped was like, oh, well, if I was Chopped first, then I must be a bad chef, you know? And Chopped just showed that, but I was a bad chef this whole time. It's not... my husband has grown up in a really loving family and his perception is like, oh, it didn't work out for me today. But I can never see it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's a pity that that's how my family raised me. But at the same time, being able to recognize that and try to reshape how I thought about failure as like instead of failure had to do with me, failure had to do with the context that I was in and how I performed that day. And it was like a step in my life. It was like this milestone that I could push beyond. But I don't think that was a 
I, I don't think I've gotten over it. It's not a perfect process. I sometimes still wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh my God, if I had just done that that day, that I would have done better. I can't believe it. Like I suck at everything. There's so many moments of like imposter syndrome and insecurity that I go through on a day-to-day basis that I don't think that cycle will ever really be complete. I can just hope that I will not pass that like self-worth problem down to my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you uh, talked about how right after you got you got back from the Chelsea market, you know, <laughs> kitchen, and you went and bought some crabs <laughs> yeah. to like re like fix the problem, which yeah. is something I totally would have done. If and I can like, just do it more, I'll fix it. Right, yeah. and you like you perfect it, and you like made them amazing mm-hmm. at home, but it like doesn't make you feel mm-hmm. better. Um, you can never, yeah, it's like there's this like hole in your heart, I think, that we're also always trying to fill with more stuff. And um, I especially felt this way when I was in fashion, but even still, sometimes it's like, if I can publish that piece, if I can do this, if I can get this press hit, if I can make more money, there's always something that I, that's missing. And that's because I, there's something in me that makes me feel like I'm not whole, I'm not good enough just as I am. I need more things. Um, And that's a problem. Yeah. But I think that's, I don't know. I think there's a lot of worth to just recognizing that. Like, as much as I want this episode to end on like a, and you should feel this way about yourself. It's kind of like, nope, that's it. Yeah. And we're going to have to keep dealing with it. Yeah, that's life, right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. Um, this is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.